Hey, this is Mark. Welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. So glad you decided to join us today. We have as our guest Charlton Hamer, who's the Senior Vice President with Habitat. And uh, we are going to have a discussion about housing, some of the intricate history in housing in, in American housing policy and how it's driven uh, the tremendous wealth gap that we have uh, between black and white right now. Black families in terms of wealth have a nickel for every dollar that white families have and housing is a big driver behind that. We also uh, hear at the end some pretty insightful and passionate insights from, from Charlton on what it means to be a college athlete and to go through the recruiting process and all of those things. So thank you again for joining us and welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. So Charlton Hamer, welcome, welcome cousin to the Parlay in All Blue. So you know, for for the audience, if you hear a sort of familiarity here, I have to, in full disclosure, say that Charlton and I are cousins. But at least on his end, it shouldn't diminish the quality of information that you are are hearing. And I'll also say this, Charlton, that I picked purple cue cards just for you today, and you all the puns intended just on that. Yeah, that's where the family stuff drops off right there. So <laughs> might as well say cousin, but that's where it falls off. That's where it falls off. All right. All, but we, all, we, all I know is crimson and cream. So that there's a that's those are very special colors. You can there there, there we go. Well, you know what? We we could really go down can, a rabbit you can hole keep the here. Purple and yellow. Uh, oh go, but <laughs> listen. I have to tell everyone that this will take us way down a rabbit hole. I'm going to pull us back out. What I want to talk about is really we're going to be doing a series of things that are really talking about how zip code affects many things in American life, education, access to health care, quality of the environment that you, you, you experience your experiences with the police, with the criminal justice system. There's so much that's determined by zip code. And where I want to start with setting setting the stage for other conversations that we'll have on the on the parlay in all blue is with housing. And having said that, Charlton, why don't you give the audience a little bit about your background and um, what you're currently doing um, at Habitat and even, you know, what's the difference between Habitat and Habitat for Humanity? So I said about 17 different questions there. So I will stop and let you go. So first, thank you for having me on. I, I, uh, I enjoy this. Uh, you know, I always enjoy talking to you, but, you know, this is uh, this will be, a, be a, a, a good a good venture here. You know, I, I was. As a as a kid, I was always interested in cities. I didn't know really how to express it or or articulate, you know, my my interest at that time. You know, I liked you know coming into Chicago and looking at you know the downtown area, which central business district area, and uh, various different neighborhoods, and you know how uh, traffic and traffic flow and the inner workings of the city that I would read about from politics and all that, and 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 trying to understand everything that goes on uh, from, from architecture, oh, everything, everything that the, that the city encompassed. And so, you know, I I my father introduced me, he wanted me to be an architect. Um, but he, he he gave me literature on architecture and how to be an architect. And part of it, at least which, which I was reading, dealt with something that was broader, which was which was urban planning. And so that's what I became interested in. So I have a, an, an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in, in urban planning, urban planning and policy, University of Illinois. And once I left the University of Illinois, I, got, I, I, I wanted to be a municipal planner. And my first job was, was as a comprehensive planner for the city of Gary, Indiana. And I learned very quickly, you know, the, 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 the practical matters of being a planner, being a, being a municipal planner is that you, you're, you're really, you're facilitating change. You're facilitating 
you know, overall quality of life for the individuals and families and, and, and all um, businesses, everyone who, who are in within that municipality. But I was jaded a little bit by politics, frustrated a little bit by politics, because politics kind of mired things. And I wanted to make a greater impact, more direct impact. From there, I went on. I was a planner with another municipality. Then I became a, 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 I worked for Chicago Housing Authority, quasi-governmental body, which was more direct impact on, on, on housing, in development, and in operations. Again, it wasn't the, the true impact that I wanted. And so I got into my first position in, with a private developer was the Habitat company in the, in the, in the mid nineties. And I was a part of a team that facil- actually facilitated development for the Chicago Housing Authority in developing scattered site housing throughout the city of Chicago. And, and you, you may know there was a, I'm not going to get into it, but the, the CHA was mandated to to develop housing in areas that were 30% less African-American because of segregating public housing, segregation of public housing units. So I I did that for a while. I got back into to actually economic development for a municipality. And then I went on to, to the East Coast. I, I served as an executive director of a very large private not-for-profit that developed supportive housing. We had a really a continuum of care and continuum of housing and continuum of care. I left there, went and, and have been uh, since the mid 2000, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. I've been all in, in really in the private sector, either um, managing assets or development, development of uh, affordable housing. Got it. So let me let me ask just briefly, when you were with the Chicago public housing in that period you're, you're talking about, was that the period of when a lot of the what what I called the the South Side skyline of Robert Taylor Homes and Stateway? Was that when those facilities were being torn down? You know what? It was it was just before. OK. Okay. But I was at the time immersed in all of the planning for that. Got it. For demolition, replacement, Robert Taylor Homes, but specifically Cabrini. Cabrini Green is is something that I was heavily involved in. Yeah. So, you know, I, I asked that, and this is, you know, for another time, I, I will tell you, but whenever people ask me, you know, well, what about Chicago? Or if I say I'm going home to Chicago, they're like, you know, be careful or what have you. I think that people don't understand that sort of time period of when those projects, those housing projects, those those formidable, I mean, buildings were being dismantled and you have people being dispersed throughout the cities and a lot of deep-rooted sort of issues that, that go along with poverty and the crimes of poverty and the violence that goes along with it just kind of spread out into certain areas of the city. And uh, now I'm sure there's a whole lot more reasons and this isn't a criminal justice episode, but I, I will say this, that I thoroughly believe that that period of time was an area where some things really began to, you know, morph and and just transform into some of the issues that that we have now. What what's the difference between habitat and habitat for humanity? Money. Habitat, the habitat company is a for-profit organization. It's a it's one that's been in existence for 50 years, a little over 50 years now. It's a vertically integrated company, both development and, and property management. We serve in several disciplines within uh, the multifamily industry from a high-end luxury apartments to condominiums to traditional affordable housing, which is you know the use of uh, low-income housing tax credits for development, operating subsidy from, from the federal government or, or municipality or the state. And public housing. So we, 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 that's kind of what makes us, makes us unique. And when I say vertically integrated from development to operations to property management, and we have a presence in 
uh, at least currently, we have a presence in the Tampa area, southeastern Michigan, the Detroit metropolitan area, Minneapolis, northwestern Indiana. We now have a presence in western Western Michigan. Have a development project in uh, that we're working on in Buffalo, um, Buffalo, New York, with the Buffalo Municipal Housing Authority. Actually, a large redevelopment there, and of course in Chicago, where where we're headquartered. Now, Habitat for Humanity is, which does a lot of uh, does a lot of great work. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it is to assist and help out families to that which in which they provide sweat equity in helping to build their own residence. So, and they've expanded from that, but they do a lot of great work, but we are a, a developer property manager, real estate developer, property manager in the multifamily space. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I definitely want to us to spend some time on some historical housing issues and how they relate to, you know, wealth and other things that are talked about at the top of the show but I wanted to ask one question just from some community involvement things that I'm involved with here in Atlanta. As as the pandemic started or at the beginning, March of last year, and I don't know when this came in, but it expired. We had in the country and, and within the states eviction moratoriums. And I don't know. And that ended, I want to say September, October. I can't remember, but it ended recently. I want to, want to just understand, you know, what are you seeing and what are you all seeing at Habitat that, you know, have, what's the fallout from that? So there are two sides. One, there's the resident side, that individual and family, and the moratorium for them on people who lost jobs, lost income, because of the pandemic and couldn't meet their obligations as far as rent, it was a it was a godsend, right? The moratorium didn't allow really landlords owners to start moving people to through the eviction process. So it it really kind of kind of guaranteed people a residence, some place to stay, some place to stay that they could keep their their home during this period of time. On the landlord side, on the owner side, one of the things that we saw was a because people had lost their jobs, because people were, you know, their their hours were cur- curtailed because of the pandemic. We saw a significant reduction in in revenue, right? We call it collections, right? So there was a significant reduction of revenue coming in. Yet and still, we we have obligations for a mortgage. We have obligations for real estate taxes. We have obligations for utilities. There were no moratoriums on those, right? Those continued to to to, to be incurred. So, you know, I, I say that because it's it's two side two sided. There were two sides of the of this issue, and and then how do we how do landlords and owners sustain themselves? It was and it was really more acute for those those owners who who small owners like two and three flats right you know oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, they, they they had some real issues the next thing that came in that i think that helped us was the cares act which allowed for subsidy and help and assistance for individuals and families to 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 pay their their rent so allocated by the federal government and came through at least in in, in illinois and Minnesota, most of the states it came through a housing finance agency and you, you had to apply for those funds. And, and, some, and, and in many cases, people were able to get those funds and they were then able to pay their rent. Right. So then, you know, that 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 sort of cyclical process of funding. Tenant and then tenant paying landlord and then landlord being able to pay their obligations were great. But yet and still there were there were people within the process who didn't do that, still didn't fulfill the paying their rent or didn't try at all. You know, in a lot of cases, we were able to to work with individuals and families to either get that sub, that 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 assistance coming in or or have them, you know, work out a payment plan for them. But those who didn't, you know, once the moratorium was lifted, you have a lot of people who are being you know, funneled through the process of eviction right now. And, and, and the housing courts probably within every municipality 
expressed backed up, backed up, backed up. And so it was a tremendous concern all the way around within the, the multifamily industry. Yeah. And, and I, particular, I, and, I, and let me say this just really quick in particular, not necessarily the high end, right. And luxury, but there was, there were issues, collection issues there, not necessarily at the, at the lower rung, which is those people who are receiving some assistance from the federal government that didn't stop the assistance right. from the federal, like the section eight program. Section eight, that, that, that's right. So there was some okay. revenue coming in. So it's really that, that, that middle, that, 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 the, the working class, you know, those who are not in, 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 in receiving that subsidy, it, it really affected them the, the most. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I listen. And, um, from what I hear and what I see anecdotally, that space on both ends of either people being evicted, right? Or those people who like, yeah, I have a rental property, but you know, I'm a I'm a school teacher and I have a rental property and my salary plus the rental rents from the rental property help us to make it. And so I, you know, listen, there's um you know, as I hear all of these stories and I and, and nobody wants to hear anything about anybody getting put out on the street or, you know, losing their their place or what have you. But all landlords are not BlackRock. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know? yeah. Exactly. So, so that that is um, I, I think we still have more to come on that as a country. And I think that will play out in the midterms next year. But yep, so yep. thank you for that overview of that, at least. And, and listen, there's so much, there's so much that you could talk about with housing that it would literally almost take a separate podcast that you'd have to do for two years just on housing. <laughs> I mean, because this on, on housing, because there's so much, I, I do want to shift gears a bit to, and, and start with one statistic and enter it sort of from from two big events. Currently, in the United States, you know, people will talk about the wealth gap, especially between black and white. And let me say that a lot of times, and I am super guilty of this, of, of framing issues in America and, and leaving out people who are Latino, leaving out people who are Asian or in all of those things. And, and listen, it's not intentional callousness or ignoring. It's just that so much of the history of the country begins with black and white. And so that's just kind of, and it's almost like one of those things, if we could solve that, a lot of other issues will go away. But the wealth gap of the Two ethnic groups that have been here the longest, <laughs> black and white, which is almost even ludicrous in and of itself. But the two, the, those who migrated here, right? Who, uh, the, the, they're, they're both the both the the, the chained. That's in, right. In, in two contexts of the chain migration. That's right. right. There's two contexts <laughs> on that migration for sure. <laughs> that that we we today are at a nickel. There's a. Five cents for every dollar. Black families have a nickel of wealth, not income, of wealth for every dollar of wealth that white families have. And ironically, and it's not that this stat is by any means a good thing. Income is like 60 cents for every dollar. Not that a 40 cents 40 cent gap on income is anything to feel good about. But if we have a sixty a forty cent gap in terms of income, why do we have a ninety five cent gap in terms of wealth and and what does housing have to do with that well housing is is real estate right it's real property that can be transacted for you know based upon its appreciation. In most cases, many times we've seen depreciation in, in some cases, but that appreciation in, in, in value. And it's in the vast majority of households, it is the and was the the major engine for being able to generate 
wealth or income or in a large sum at one time rather than over period of years, even though that happens as well over a period of, 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 of years. And so because of it, the, the, the magnitude of that investment, right? It's the most substantial investment that most households are going to make. It's, you know, and and it does appreciate Um, car. Another thing, car is one, but car, take it off the lot and you know it depreciates right away right so that's what's that's that's where we look at at least especially for middle income families which you know are the vast majority in this country yep. that was the engine for 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 wealth and so the importance of owning a home right from yep. what the even the federal government saw from a policy standpoint was very important to the overall economy, especially the c- consumer economy. When you've when you've got a, a, a lot of wealth circul- circulating, a lot of dollars circulating throughout your your economy, you've you know you have this this what we have today, this great consumer economy, and and so the the, the federal government saw that this was uh, something that was ad- advantageous for the larger economy, and so there were a number of different policies that were put into place for for people to begin to own their own homes. So so there's a number of different policies to help at least narrow us because there's there's a there's many avenues and and there's some of them that are important and we'll get to but if we could look at through the lens of two big events the great migration which is essentially 6 million African Americans leaving the south and heading to northern cities, a lot of them that you said uh, that were habitat uh, <laughs> operates Buffalo, Chicago, uh, Milwaukee, Gary, mm-hmm. Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. I mean, that's that that great migration, blacks leaving the South, and then the Great Depression, right? With, with, you know, so they're the economy crashing or what have you. How do those two things sort of play in terms of the creation of our our first sort of and this is from my my standpoint as a novice uh, or as a, as a layman or just somebody just a uh, your average Joe reading the creation of sort of formal housing policy you know like the FHA and all of those things how do those things those two events drive drive decisions that we make. Well, in some cases they're connected, but in some cases they're exclusive as well. So the great migration who, you know, you, you and I are part of, we're part of the great migration that you migrated back. Yes. <laughs> you might agree. Actually, first generation, you're first generation. I don't have any snow to shovel. That's right. You got that right. Um, you know, in, in, in just really quickly, if you think about it, you think about people who migrate, migrate to this country, and then my, the Great Migration was like, like was it, it, even though it was within this country, it was like we were migrating to another country as as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And if you and, and if you think about it real quickly, you know, you and I, the first generation, you know, the, in the context of the context of immigrants, right? Yep. You and I were first generations. Who, 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 the first generation of, of those who were born, right, and raised in the North, right? That's right. And, oh, in, yeah. that, and in that short period of time, look at you, in that short, short period of time, you've changed that around. You've gone, you've gone back, which, which a lot, you know, we can get into it later, but there's a lot of that migration that's going back. That's why you have in all the cities that you name this reduction of population and people going back. So, but, but, but with that, as you know, we were, we were the major part of the agrarian society in, 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 in the, in the South. And, and when that ended, you know, you had all of the, the concerns of, of the reconstruction period and that, and that when that faltered, you had black laws and Jim Crow and you had all the other issues, social issues that affected us to an extreme you had then the industrial growth in the northern cities, and so that there were opportunities. So we we were part of a chained migration first, and yep. then as we moved and, and moved up north, there was we were part of that the the traditional chain migration, right? So right. when some body goes up north, they find opportunity, and they said, "Listen, you're you're 
my father used to say, you know, you're catching hell down there. So please, you know, there's a little bit there, there's some sunlight up here. So please right. let's go, you know, let's, there's some opportunity. So, so it was, you know, Hey, this, the steel mills or, you know, what is it? The, the manufacturing car uh, automotive industry in Detroit and various different places that so we can, we came for those because there were, there was opportunity. A lot of that came during the great depression. A lot of came during and after world war two as well, because there was an abundance of jobs. And so we came here, we were catching hell down South, but things were not as they, they were not hospitable in the North as well. And so we, we tended to move in areas where, you know, most of us were, and we did not venture, we did not venture out of those, those communities for a number of different reasons that we can, we can talk about as well. As far as the great depression, so you had the first phase 1A of the Great Migration that had happened while during the, 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 the Depression. So you had a lot of these black folks who had moved up north, who then, you know, as jobs waned as well during that period of time, were out of work. They were segregated. You had a lot of migration from other comp- countries as well. And so people were out of work. You had... Uh, there, there was nothing in place from the federal government as far as housing was concerned. So you had this ex- this explosion of these northern cities. Yep. You had really, really uh, de- decrepit and substandard housing and a lack of housing as well. And so really during de- in a, a, a significant amount of effort within public policy of the New Deal went towards housing, right? Yep. And so from the mid thirties to the latter part of the, of the thirties, you had, you know, the federal housing administration, the FHA, you had uh, the federal savings and loan, you had even the housing act of, of 1937, which, which, you know, was public housing authorities and, and being able to get subsidy from the federal federal government to, to build housing. So you had a lot of focus on people owning homes, people owning property. FHA was, was helping to in, in, ensure mortgages to reduce the risk. And so you had a, a great deal of that going on for issues of the economy, but also for, you know, one where you were looking at getting people into homes and getting in the decent, safe and, and affordable homes as well. And, you know, so whenever I, I think about that period, for sure, you know, there is a, a point of of with, you know, all of those things you talked about, the Housing Act of 1937 and FHA and sort of all of those things in many ways is really brilliant and innovative sort of financial engineering and social engineering. I'm not saying it's perfect, right? But just the American middle class is unique in terms of, or at least it was at one point in terms of its creation. But, you know, there was also some things that were, that as a country where people, you know, look at, you know, America and the, the whole idea of, I, I think it was FDR's a, a garage and a chicken or what, what was it? A chicken in every pot, two car, a car in a garage, chicken in every right, pot. Yeah, yeah, things, right. yeah, yeah, and yeah. so there was a portion of America that was, you know, really moving towards that and a whole lot of black people for reasons that were intentional from the government as it relates to housing policy, whether it be, you know, the most obvious. And, and, I, and I think it's worth talking about it because um, redlining and all of those things. What happened? What sort of happened? Walk us through a couple of those things that that did lead to that chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That's it. It was the chicken in every pot and the car in every garage. And and then led us to, you know, um, you know, the, the Norman Lear sitcoms with uh, George and Wheezy having to still make it in 1970 or JJ in Florida, you know, still struggling. But what happened? What happened where Dick Van Dyke clearly won <laughs> and the Evans and the Jeffersons are still struggling in 1970? Wow. You know what? So, 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 uh, very, very well put. <laughs> 
Um, and, and maybe the young, you, you, you might have to use another reference for a younger audience. So. I know. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> so, they, they'll listen so, later with the, you yeah. know, their parents will make them listen. So there we go. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I, I like the way that you put it as far as, you know, policy that was created for the social good, right? Social and economic good. And, and so when you look at it from a broad perspective, and you analyze it and you say yes. And a lot of people refer back to the New Deal and the programs of the New Deal that, uh, that you know, have still affected society to, to this day, right? I mentioned, you know, FHA and all those. Those are still in existence today. Then it becomes down to practicality. Then it comes down to the municipal level. It becomes down to the neighborhood level and becomes down to the issue of people's bias and power struggles and all of that. And so one of the underwriting standards of given the FHA, one of the underwriting standards uh, that was put into place is to is to try to look at various different neighborhoods, areas. Uh, I don't know if it was by zip code because you go going back to that, but you know zip code is a is a district, so you you look you look at those as as well, and they tried to look at what how can we mitigate our risk in insuring these mortgages, and they primarily looked at places that were African American and put a red line around those areas and said this is a community of risk. They don't have the means, and that's saying a number of different things from a monetary standpoint, from an educational standpoint, from a future standpoint that they don't have the, they don't have the meaning that they don't have the, the sort of gumption to get up and go to do things and, and, and to ensure their obligations. So they put a red line um, around primarily our communities, areas that we were understand that we were already segregated in already, which, which I've talked about, put a red line around those areas. And, and if we, who were in tenements at that time, come up from the South, new migrants, right, um, come up from the South, and now we've made some money. And if we do want to expand and we do want to purchase a home, uh, it became very problematic for us because we weren't a part of, we weren't able to benefit from FHA-insured loans. And so it made it much harder for us to be able to get to to get loans to buy a home to secure real estate which was which was very problematic and then if we wanted to leave that redlined area right the area that was redlined and move out to primarily majority areas primarily white areas there was a you know outside of public policy there was a visceral reaction of those residents that, you know, they didn't want to live around black people. They had their own biases and prejudice. And some, in some cases they acted out violently, violently to threaten, to terrorize people to not live in those, those neighborhoods. They also created a restrictive covenants, restricted deeds. So if there was any sort of transaction of that property, it could not be conveyed to someone or at least they listed someone who was of uh well, how can i put this Dis- discernible someone who was of discernible sub-saharan african phenotype so so you know we did have folks who would who we quote unquote pass would be able to get but right 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 but so here's the thing is, is and that, you know, there's been um, just a, a lot about covenants for some reason here recently in the St. Louis area, because, you know, like so many things that happen in, in business or academia or whatever, somebody comes up with a quote unquote good idea or model is just sort of a cut and paste. The language in much of St. Louis County and St. Louis was to say developers were building properties and putting covenants in at the sort of macro level of, you know, 30 or maybe 100 homes that a developer was building and saying, these loans only go to people of the Caucasian race. I mean, literally spelled out that way. Yep. In certain areas, Chicago and Detroit, almost written the other ways, no Negroes or immigrants, right? Yep. So it's, yep. it's, it's yep. I mean, the 
and the reason I wanted to 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 just emphasize that for a minute is that these covenants were this is not this is not a handshake, right? This is a legal. This document. is a legal document. Okay. It's a it's a legal di- document that runs with the property and it, and and is it is a, a part of law, an obligation once the transaction occurs. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so so it can and, be and, policed accordingly. Yeah. 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 You could evict people. You could prevent yeah, a sale. Yeah. There's a whole lot that yeah. could be done that there's not this not. These are not things that, you know, this was not just people behaving badly. Right. Which is a which is a deal. I mean, the violence, I don't ever want to downplay the violence or intimidation or the sort of policing in like locking people in, which is a big part of the Ferguson after that, just sort of the way policing really kept people into certain neighborhoods, but also keeping people out. But in this case, you're talking legal documents and especially in a heavily regulated industry, real estate from the beginning in the United States is heavily regulated. You can find deeds. I mean, it's more than anything. You can find stuff there. So I think that's really important. I do want to want to stop just briefly for the the audience, because while there was a red line, there were three other lines. And I'm just I'm not going to read the entire language. I have it just pulled this is from the underwriting guidelines that the FHA had and sort of green, new homogeneous area. And by homogeneous, you're talking about American business and professional men. Those are race neutral codes for white. They want yeah. homogeneous, meaning all white. And that was number one, most desirable, still desirable was blue. You ha- and it, it again that homogeneousness is there, but the housing may be a little older, but still w- well maintained. Then there's yellow, neighborhood in transition. <laughs> you got immigrants, and then you have typically bordering on or near black neighborhoods. And then everybody knows about the redlining, which is now we're talking all black, and so. Saying that to say when we talk about this wealth gap, yeah, it's one thing to say some people didn't get, but if you were in that blue and green and and it didn't matter if it didn't matter what the what the black neighborhood looked like, what the black persons, what their education did, how long they've been on their job, you were That's not right. buying a home in those right. blue right. or green areas in it's it's such a, it's such, you, you just, just start, it's like playing, um, it's almost like if you were playing Michael Jordan or Kobe, and then you gave them 16 points to a game of 20 at the beginning. Of the week. No, no, that's right. That's right. You know, that's, so, so, so we had, so we had the, the, the redlining, you mentioned the violence, you mentioned the covenants. And in those things, and there are other things, though. I mean, and you and I talked off camera before blockbusting, sort of. As what, what, what is that? What is that? So those transitioning areas, right? So where a black family was able to move into a community, and they were able to fight against the experience of if there was some visceral reaction or violence towards them, they, they wanted to stay. The next thing was, listen, here comes uh, a real estate broker who is also an opportunist because a part of what they, they, they receive as far as uh, a fee is their, their, their brokerage fee. Once there's a sell of a house, or there will be a part of that transaction they come to the residents and they say, the white residents, and say, listen, there was a black family that moved three doors down. And you know what that means? That means more of them are going to come. And, and when more of them come, you know, your, your, your real estate values are going to go down. So what you should do is you should put the house on the market with me. It was a scare tactic. It was yep. a scare tactic tactic. That was extremely successful throughout the country, and and really, we, we we when we talk about white flight, you can't talk about white flight without talking about this issue of blockbusting. Yep. 
And so that's what it, exactly what it what it led to. What led to 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 white people fleeing, fleeing the area, fleeing these neighborhoods, fleeing, going further out. And as more uh, as more people sold, the quicker and faster they wanted to get out. And so they they would even reduce the value of their homes. And so you would have a you would have a change not not only in the racial makeup of the community and ethnic makeup of the community, but you'd also have a change in the socioeconomic aspect of the community as as well, because they purposely were lowering the value just to get out. Yeah. So in terms of when my parents bought the home that I grew up in, which would have been in the in the in the sixties, I think that the redlining in terms of that strict sort of explicit racial language had been, you know, removed or what have you, but the practice was still there, right? And well, the practice you know, was still there. And, and so I would imagine that our neighborhood was probably a yellow, right? Even though it might not have been an actual, you know, written at that point. But one of the things that was, you know, reading about this, I, mean, I was really insulted for a number of reasons. But in addition to sort of Things like having a, a a black woman walk down the street with a baby, you know, in a in a in a white area, just to just to scare people. To scare people, yep. It had people calling homes and what I would call only in blackface, right? But by voice, right? Yep. Yeah. And asking, and the most common name they would call and say, "Hey, can I speak to?" Is Johnny May, which is would have been a typical. Southern black name, and my godmother's name is Johnny May, and I love her. And so I'm just thinking, you know what? I mean, I, I don't want to. I think the parlay in all blue has explicit on there, but I haven't cussed on the show yet, so I'm not going to. <laughs> but I, I was just like, this is what, 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 what is this, man? But so, I listen it, as we go through this. There was one other thing that I wanted to to touch on is during that time frame and, I, and, it's, and and clearly there's some things that are still happening now is what were sort of real estate agents doing in terms of so now I'm ready to buy and I and I say hey you know here are my requirements I want you know a school I want to be near a park or what have you and I'm black are the real estate agents you know, I, I've, I've got, you know, a 10 year old and a seven year old. I want some place for them to go to school in the park near us. And I work here. What have you? Were they were they steering to all of St. Louis or all of Milwaukee or how were real estate agents? What were what were they doing during this time? So we talked about on one side, the people who the, you're trying to get people to sell. Right. The, the, the block busting side. And now the issue of if you are a broker who's working with a family and, 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 and understand real estate broker and real estate brokerage was high, highly regulated. And generally everybody, you know, it hasn't been since the kind of the onset of technology where people are able to kind of do things themselves and look and, and, and discover property that's for sale now. You know, it was through a, a very restrictive you know, multiple listing service and all and all of those things, all all the things that that, that real estate brokers coveted to themselves in their industry and kept track of that. So, with minorities, primarily black folks, real estate agents would steer them to other black communities specifically, and steer them. If a black family came in and asked for, I want to be near a, a particular park. I want to here are the amenities that I want. And that, and those amenities fit perfectly for within a white community. They would purposely steer them away from that community and steer them to a, to a black community. And, you know, you, you used the terminology were there are laws in place right now that prohibit that, but you know, that's still, you know, there's, Part of that practice is still going on today. And, you know, it's it's the federal government has to police that as well. You know, what's troubling about this is, is that for anybody who wants to just look at any of this, it's these are things that are documented. In fact, the 
National Realtors Association apologized for its role in driving segregation or what have you. I think they apologized last year, maybe it was 19 or 20, just recently for doing those things. Yeah, it, but but those things had you know very real ramifications. And these were go- common. They were they were common practice. This is common practice. This is not an anomaly. This was, steering was not an anomaly. It's a common practice. Blockbusting, like we said, was a common practice. Yeah. So you take the real estate real estate associations and the realtors, right? Then you combine it with blockbusting. Then with the, the, the red lining, green lining too, which is just as important, right? That's and right. you have the covenants and then the, what I would call state sanctioned violence, because as, you know, black families would move into neighborhoods, you know, you had all of these, you know, people burning out. And these are in northern cities. This is not even, That's the, right. this is, no, we're right. not even talking That's about right. the South, exactly. right? Exactly. You know, there was no ram- legal ramification. It wasn't like, you know, this black family moved in and, they had racial slurs, you know, painted on the house and, you know, they, they were they were attacked violently. People didn't go to jail. Right. So you had sort of the government that creates this sort of web that created. And I'll use the term ghettos for because I don't want to sanitize it. Right. But, you know, segregation is not just sort of separating things in terms of neat little things. It's a it's a it's a very heinous system. And I, I'm sort of close out on this one, at least this piece of it, because there's some other things I want to get to. In Richard Rothstein's book, Color of Law, you know, which talks a lot about just the history of housing, says that from 1934 to 1968, 98% of FHA loans went to white families. So when we talk about the wealth gap, it is, it's all right there in terms of black and white, no pun intended. It's written, it's documented, what have you. And, you know, we have opportunities to change this. And I, and I, and I wish for anybody who would wonder why, why do I do this podcast or anything is that I really hope that people just get that racial slurs are really bad or misbehavings really bad or what have you. But if we want to get better, we have to examine the systems that got us here and the policies that that sort of got us here. But to that end, we have the Housing Act in 1968. Okay. And so when you were talking earlier about us being, you know, part of the first generation that's raised in the North, I always tell people that if you start civil rights from Brown versus Board, and it really doesn't end. And so you get, you know, Brown versus Board School Integration and you've got Voting Rights, Civil Rights Act. You have all of those acts that we that we know really well. Loving versus Virginia, which means who you can you, you can marry who you want to. And then in 68, you get fair housing. And for a whole nother discussion. In my mind, so I think that's August of 68 doesn't matter. But until the day after that signed, you really don't have true citizenship universally in America for black people until the federal housing, meaning like it's choppy. Like you could vote here or maybe not vote here. You could go to an integrated school here and not here. You could. Your rights were not guaranteed. Yeah. Not until not until 1968, which is, you know, if you you just step back from it, when people say it's such a long time ago, it's not not really in terms of having just like I am a citizen in every state, every municipality is not until fair housing. But with fair housing, I moved into my house, it's an integrated neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> there was no violence moving in, right? There was nothing there. Uh, my kids walked up and down and around and to school and back. And so we didn't have any of those things. So something worked. But at the same time, you know, we, we haven't closed that gap. What what was good about federal the Federal Housing Act? And what, what was it? What worked? And where do we have some room for opportunity? Well, yeah, you know, I'll say this with the author that you just talked about used, you know, 1934, which was the creation of of, of the FHA, 
1968, which was the Civil Rights Act. And on the Civil Rights Act, you know, Title, Title Eight through Eight and Nine really dealt with, you know, with fair housing. So all of the things that we talked about for in regards to blockbusting and steering and the FHA itself, that 98%, 98% of a program that was to, 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 to spear and to, and to provide growth for housing, 98% of that went to white people. Well, what would the other 2% go to? So, so, and it wasn't just all black people either. So, 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 so it, you know, given the, 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 the fair housing act, it placed at least a legal cure on all of the things that thwarted black people from creating wealth through real estate or at least creating wealth through real estate and being able to get their, their own home. And so with that, after 1968, you did have this expansion of, and there were a number of different other things as well. You know, it, no, no, it was it, it really everything from the Civil Rights Act. So yeah. everything from the Civil Rights Act kicked in in regards to employment, yep. in regards to, you know, what the workforce looks like, in, re- in regards to housing and where you are able to purchase housing. All of those things kicked in. You saw you saw an increase of the black middle class and you saw an elevation of the black middle class uh, of the working class working poor into into the middle class and then you were also able to see at that time as people were able to get into the workforce and be, and, and 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 based upon uh, merit as well people have gone to school you know our folks yeah went very well educated yeah went to school and they were able to benefit from from the positions and jobs that they were able to get and then of course then be able to purchase a, a home and then be able to begin to start to create that wealth. Yep. Previously there were only only a few. You actually you said what was good during that, that period of time with the FHA, well you threw out that statistic of 98 percent wasn't a lot good yeah. for black folks, a lot good for white people and primarily the growth and explosion especially after World War II of the white middle class yeah. and the and and a, a lot of the wealth that was created during that period was then passed along to 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 their prodigy to their to their children we began truly as a as a people as a group of people in this country after 1968 which you and I were both living in 1968. That's right. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and you know, for anybody that says the government didn't do anything for me, listen, a lot of those new new subdivisions, especially the suburbs, that's all government subsidies from the, the build out of the infrastructure, from the e- electricity to water, to the highways, to the home loans themselves from the builders or what have you. And, and there's, there's, there's like a ton there. And, and so I want to just just because we're almost out of time, I, I want to put a bow on that piece of it. And thank you for for, for bri- providing insight and color to that. And again, for anybody who's listening, I don't care. All ears matter. Anybody who is listening. Can I say it, one quick thing? Please, one yeah. quick one quick thing, because I think this is, is very important. And I yeah. and I, I, I don't want to be cavalier to say that everything after 1968 and Civil Rights Act, everything has been great. And we are able to fully participate. <laughs> right. No, no. Right. There right. there there are laws in place that ca- that that we're able to uh uh, be able to get a legal cure for discrimination. That doesn't mean that discrimination has gone al- gone away. The blockbusting tries to occur, but we can legally go after it. Steering still occurs, and 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 HUD prosecutes people and and, and companies still to this day based upon that. We've seen recently, but it's been happening all along. We've seen recently with issues of appraising homes. Oh my if God! If there are uh, if there are black residents in those homes, then those those they they are devalued. So we're still seeing those issues today. So yes, we have we have uh, the legal cures are in place, but we're still seeing the discrimination and bias to this day, which directly affect 
our wealth, our family revenue, our family balance sheet. See that with the appraisal. Oh yeah, yeah. That, now, now the appraisals. It's much like the the which I don't understand why why we and when I'm saying we here, I'm talking about the country, the government, the cities, citizens, the democracy doesn't correct that. But it's kind of like the same thing of during the blockbusting and the steering and what have you of allowing real estate the real estate agents to just run amok. This issue with the appraising is super serious. And for those who are not aware of it, and these are not in, not in, in talking about racial or ethnic, ethnically homogeneous areas, not meaning integrated areas, you will have a black family who has a home and gets it appraised to sell. And it is sometimes appraised half to 70% less than when the black family does something which is called whitewashing, meaning take all of the photos out, like photo of you and your wife, you just take that out. Any black art, anything that says you're black, you know, take that Al Green record, take that Nas record, move it out, whatever it is. And now all of a sudden, it, and, and this is serious. I mean, it, it's it very serious. For, for you know twice the amount and and that that is crap and it has to stop and so the, if there are any lawmakers or policymakers listening please please stop it but we got we got to wrap up and i got some things i want to get to and for everybody we ask what does it mean to live well so i i, I like to go by you know i i was always enamored with the triangle that was illustrated through the YMCA, right? Spirit, mind, and body. First and foremost, you know, I have faith and belief in God and Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and, and, and being able to have, have faith in him as far as and put my life in his care is, yeah. is, is what I believe is good living, first and foremost. Uh, mind and being able to day to day, I'm extremely busy, a lot of things going on, but it's being able to also have fun and laugh. I joke around a lot. Um, and that helps with my, you know, really my, 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 my mental state, my psyche meditating on a daily basis and then body, you know, I was an athlete for years and, and when I stopped training, you know, my body hurt and all that, that sort of thing. And I, I, I neglected my body, but I, I found out later on in life, uh, extremely important, extremely yeah. important. Yeah, Not yeah. only the exercise portion, but the, the, the diet portion as, as well. Very important for longevity. And then within that middle of the triangle that I have is really my family. You know, my, 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 my wife, my children, my sisters my extended family, all of those people who I care for and care for me. Those are the things I, I look at as far as living well, anything after that, you know, vacationing and all that, that's, those are, you know, those are great things. But, but to me, those, everything that I've mentioned is kind of, is, is first and foremost to me. Awesome. Thank you for that. All right. And now on to the lighter portion of this, but actually we'll start a little heavier, uh, but we'll, we'll get into make it light at the end. That and, and You mentioned athletics, and I'll start with you were um, a collegiate athlete, Big Ten athlete, Illinois, right? And, and now coming out of high school, were you recruited for track and football or for, for both? For, okay. Both. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's start with this, this first one, which is not kind of light. It's certainly not light to me. Uh, at least, but recently, uh, I know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, right, right. Travis Hunter is a young man who's the nation's top football recruit, committed to Jackson State and HBCU. He had been verbally committed to Florida State, a Power Five football conference, or what have you. And we had some big name coaches and athletic directors nearly lose their mind and tampering with these kids. They're paying these kids. They're they're uh, This isn't about academics anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As someone who had been through that process, what was your reaction to it? The process of being recruited and knowing what's that like and 
than getting it. What was what was just your reaction? First, my first reaction was absolute excitement, a shift in the power structure. Yeah, a shift, a tremendous shift in the power structure. And why so many people are angry is because the power structure has always been, you know, with the larger, well-moneyed universities, very famous, tremendous salaried college coaches, programs that are able to offer a wealth of ancillary issues, the food and and equipment and facilities, but not necessarily looking at one's future goals or caring about one's intellect or education. I, I don't care what they say. They'll say, oh, well, we graduated. They, they don't care. Yeah, yeah, All they yeah, care yeah. about is winning and bringing revenue to the university. And, and a lot of that has been with black players, black yeah. athletes. Oh yeah, a lot mm-hmm. of it has been, and 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 so if you if you look at that, the wealthy universities, larger institutions, and some of the what we call the Power Five conference for, with with football, college coaches who are making, you know, eight eight and a half million dollars a year. They're the they're the you know like in like an Alabama coach Saban is the is the the top paid state employee in the state of Alabama. Right. Making it, it, almost eight and a half million dollars a year, so right. the power structure has has been there. But yet, and still, for them to win, they need all of these black athletes. And so, th- when you have when you have a black athlete at the at the level of this young man who chose to go to Jackson State, yeah, say he's going there rather than the then what did he have? Ohio State and Florida State. And he threw the capsules. You know, if you look, he threw the cap yeah. around. To say that he is going there is again a shift in the power structure. And a pow- and that part of that power structure shifts to the athlete. Yeah. Shifts shift to all the, the, the black players who are who at uh, most of these institutions are being used. We've, we, we've always said it. They're being, being, being used. Nobody really cares about them after they graduate. Nobody really cares about them unless they care for themselves and their parents care for them as far as how they matriculate and what, what fields and vocations that they go into and what they're studying and those sorts of things. Cause the university doesn't care. They just want them in and, 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 and get out. Tremendous shift. There's a tremendous shift. Now other kids are going to be looking at, Hmm, you know what? Jackson state, I can go there, be in a very nurturing environment, go to a coach because they always say, well, we can get you the pro, but go to a coach who is a, who is a hall of famer, has connections, can get you to that next level just as well as anybody else can, right? right. You can go and get, and get a great inf- education where, where people and an infrastructure is going to care about you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that uh, you you nailed it. I mean, those are my thoughts. You know, I didn't I didn't play uh, collegiate athletes, but you know, I wanted to get that from your perspective. So, so appreciate that. Who was the best athlete you competed against? So, so you know, I I didn't play football in college, thank God, because I'm, I'm messed up in, just in in track and from football in high school. But at Illinois, we had a really good team. We had a we were we were. Um, national runners up in indoor, I think in 88, you know, we had a, a girth of all Americans and guys who, who, who were uh, world-class athletes at world ranking. And we had a lot of guys in the big 10 conference who were great as well. And, and probably the, the, the guy who you use athlete and, I, and, and truly Rod Woodson, Rod Woodson from Purdue, yeah, who yeah, yeah. played yeah. many years in Pittsburgh as a defensive back. Oh yeah, he was a world class hurdler as well. He ran the mile relay. We competed against them in the mile relay. They never beat us, but he 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 he, he from a, from a, a pure sprinter hurdler, hundred and ten hurdler to move up to uh, to 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 run the quarter. I mean, and, and what he did in football, uh, he, a period. I, I competed yeah, yeah. against him, but period. He one of the greatest athletes in the in the sports in sports history of America. Great athlete. Great athlete. Yeah, I didn't realize it. So you said he ran a mile relay. Is, is, is yeah. So he, 
So he he could do a number of different things on the track and field. I mean, I mean, clearly is very fast, but he could run a number of different events there. Well, listen, I saw him I, when I went to I went to the Midwest Meet of Champions in eighty three. Mm-hmm. I I only went to watch because the Wisconsin athletic you know the Wisconsin Athletic Association didn't allow their high schoolers to go and compete outside the state. So I, I went to the, and it was, it was the best athletes in Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio. Yeah. And, you know, they brought all the state champions in and competed against. I saw him break the national record in the 300 meter low hurdles that day. I mean, he, listen, he was a, a great athlete. Great athlete. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And finally, what's the biggest difference between a Big Ten athlete, a Big Ten athlete and an SEC athlete? So so you've you forgot to 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 add student athlete. So <laughs> these are these are athletic conferences, but they are schools first and foremost. They are, aren't and they? So, aren't they? Yes. You, you know, yeah, in the in the in the Big Ten conference, we have a a, a a higher bar in regards to education than they do in the SEC conference. You know, right. I, I'm not quite sure what their standards are for letting people in, but you know, they're they appear to be much lower than than the Big Ten. All right, so that was Charlton Hamer who said that, not me. I'm going to let it go there. Listen, I want to thank you for this. And um, for everyone listening, stay on and just hear sort of the outro, some good stuff there. I appreciate you. And, And also for anyone listening, Spotify now allows you to do a ranking on in terms of uh, podcasts, like you can give it stars or what have you. Go on and get a parlay and, and all blue five stars. Charlton, we really appreciate this. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.